All right, good evening, welcome back. So thank you for joining us again. This is our second class of the series of In Their Footsteps. We are tracing the lives of our patriarchs and matriarchs and trying to derive some life lessons. Last week, we focused much on Abraham, Avraham's sort of intuitive um, sense of what, what to do in life, what's right, his intuitive ability to discover God on his own, despite everything that was going on around him. And, uh, and we, we, we kind of ended off with this very profound idea that he spent so much of his life um, pursuing his mission of spreading the word of God, even before he had ever received a prophecy from God. And so all that was just, nobody had told him what to do. It was just what he felt was the right thing to do. And, uh, and then he finally, God appears to him and gives him an instruction. Like it's the first time that he's been told what to do up till now. It's always, I just do what I think is right. And now he's being told what to do. And that was part of his first test or what may have been the first test, depending on how you count them to try to balance this and do something, not because he only felt it was right, but because God had told him to do it. And of course, that's going to eventually take us to his ultimate test, which will be the, the binding of Isaac, Akedat Yitzchak, where he really is told to go, go against his own intuition. And, uh, and he's able to, to do that. So when we get there, eventually, we'll, we'll talk about that more. Um, now, Abraham is famous, I think, for two main things. You know, he's famous for being the first monotheist the first one to really, at least after somewhat of a, of a long break, to discover that there's one God, to realize that not, you know, all these idols can't all be God and the sun can't be God and the moon. And there's one God who controls everything and for, for spreading that word and publicizing it and developing a following and then eventually having a nation of, of believers come from him. So he's known for his, for his emunah, his faith in God and his belief in God. But he's also known for something that at first may seem unrelated, which is he's known as the pillar of chesed, of kindness. Avram's famous for his, uh, his, his inviting guests over. And he, had four, you know, he had openings on all sides of his tent, so he could have guests. And as we actually go through different episodes of his life, we'll see you in terms of relationships, in terms of chesed, in terms of taking care of people. He really excelled. Um, so pose the question, are these things at all related to each other? The fact that he was a great believer in God and the fact that he was a tremendous Baal Chesed, a person who did great kindness. Are these, somewhat, are these in any way connected? So the Midrash, our sages actually connect them, and that's the first source. And they say, they write that when Avraham, our forefather, came and looked out and realized that God had created the world, with chesed, with kindness, he also clung to this trait. So the Midrash is telling us that actually what, uh, what inspired Avraham to pursue acts of kindness was his, his desire to emulate God. Because he saw in creation, he looked around, he saw all the good that God provides, that God gives us, the amazing life that we each have the ability to live in the world that God gives us. And he said, if God does so much kindness, if God created the world for kindness, then, uh, then I want to I wanna cling to that. I want to pursue, pursue that trait as well. So they are very much related. I think they're related on another level, which is just the ability for a person to see beyond themselves, to, to be a person who... who uh, acts kindly towards others, who does good deeds, who does acts of kindness, who helps others. So you have to be able to, to see beyond yourself. People who are very focused inward, so it's not, it's not even necessarily deliberate. They, I just don't have time to help anybody else because I have all my needs and when do I, you know, how can I help others? But it's really a, an outlook. It's a perspective where what, what's our focus? If a person's very focused on themselves and their needs, then yeah, then they don't have the ability or the time 
to even consider the needs of others. But the more a person is able to look out and see and recognize others and see them, then the more that they can be involved in helping others. And that also ties into to believing in, in God, the ability to sort of see beyond oneself, that there could be more than just more than just me, but there could be a God out there. So those two things I tie together that way as well. So I think there's two connections. One is, as I'm saying it now, just the ability for one to see beyond themselves, but also this what the Midrash alludes to here, which is that Avraham pursued acts of kindness because he recognized that in God and he wanted to emulate that. And so that's another piece of the beginning of Avraham's development when he looks around and he sees he sees all that God provides. There's a, another, oh, before we get to the measure, so there's an example of this in the Talmud where he wants to spread this knowledge. The Talmud tells us the following. It says that, number two, Abraham, our forefather, caused the name of the Holy One, blessed be he, to be called out in the mouth of all passersby. He taught people to call out to God, not in prayer, but in, in thanks. Maybe in prayer as well, but in this context, it's talking about in, in thanks. And it, the, the Talmud says, how so? So we mentioned he was, a, he was a great host. He always had guests, passersby. He would invite them in for a meal. And uh, he would deliberately position himself in a way that he could find guests. He really wanted to help people. Um, but after they ate and drank, so they got up and they were, good, they were going to bless him. They were going to express appreciation to Avraham. Thank you so much for, for having us over. You've been such a help. So he would say to them, but did you eat from what is mine? Rather, you ate from the food of the God of the world. Therefore, you should thank and praise and bless the one who spoke and the world was created. That's the expression he uses, the one who, to describe God, the one who spoke and the world was created. Just mean, he, he means God. Don't thank me, he said. Thank God. If you, I, I'm just the messenger. I'm bringing you God, what you know, the the bounty that God is giving me to to help to help you, which is another important perspective. That sometimes when we have, when we have the means to help others, so so we can recognize that maybe the reason why we have those means, whether it's financial, whether it's physical, whatever it is that we can do, it may be that we've been given that by God for the very purpose of using it to help others. And that's what Avraham recognized, and he wanted. He wanted the recipients to recognize that as well, to recognize where, what's the source of it all, who's really providing it. And so he would, after the meal, they get up to thank him. He said, don't thank me. Thank God. That's where it's really coming from. So he was really spreading this message of kindness by performing acts of kindness, but then saying, you know, who's the real, you know, who's, who's really at the source of it. It's God's kindness. It's God who's really providing so we see that that brought out in his in his actions as expressed by the Talmud. Now, another somewhat famous idea about Avraham's formative uh, formative years. We talked last week a few of the different ways that he sought out God, that he found God, the questions that he asked about the world. So, so one of them is expressed in in another midrash. Our sages. In number three, they say as follows, Rabbi Yitzchak said, this can be compared to a person, Avraham, can be compared to a person who was traveling from place to place and saw a tower that was a lit, a light, a lit, a light. The Hebrew word there is, he saw a tower, a bira, that was doleket. Doleket, it's unclear exactly what it means. It means lit up. It's not so clear to me if it means it was you know, there were lights on inside, or if it means that it was on fire. And I think there's, it could be interpreted both ways, and we'll, we'll, we'll try to interpret it in each way. So he saw, this is a, a parable or analogy, it says it, we can compare Avraham's search, so to speak, to a person traveling, and they see a, a tower, somebody built a tower, and the tower is lit up. So the person says, could one say that this tower has no one controlling it? So at that moment, after he raises that question, the owner of the tower appeared to him and said, I am the owner of the tower. So similarly, Avraham said, could one say that this world has no guide? 
He looked at the world, the world is the tower, and he sees the world doleket, lit up in some way, either it's, there's lights on or it's on fire, one or the other. And uh, he says, could it be, could one say this, this world has no guide? So that time, then God appeared to him and said, I am the owner of the world. So God appears eventually to Abraham with, a, with prophecy and says, yeah, you, you found me. So, so what, is this, what is this teaching us? What does this mean? What did Abraham see that uh, he was convinced that there was a owner of the world? Now, we have to understand actually what the ideology of that time period was. There were, there were idol worshipers in his time, but most believed that God had created the world. That there was one God who created the world, but many believed that he just, then he, he left it. He left it in the hands of the sun and the moon and various idols. So the fact that, that God created the world wasn't really what Avram discovered. That was known already. That's what everybody believed already. Um, so the fact that he sees intelligent creation, he sees a tower. So he said, he said you know, obviously if there's a tower, someone built the tower. So you see a world, so obviously some, you know, such a complex world, obviously someone created the world. That everybody agreed. But what he saw was that there's somebody guiding the world. So again, we come back to this word, this word in, the, in the analogy, in the parable, where it says that he saw a, uh, a tower that was a light. So it could mean that there, was, there were lights on inside. He saw it's, somebody's operating this. The sun comes up every day, right? The, then it goes down at night when it's time to sleep. He saw all the functioning, um, how the world functions such a, such, in such a beautiful, harmonious way. He said, there's got to be someone who's, who's operating this. This is, this is intelligent. This is deliberate. And that's how he knew. That's one way, I think, to interpret this. He saw it delicate. He saw it, it's a light. And again, that comes from ability to appreciate it, to look at the world, appreciate the, the goodness, the kindness, the bounty of God. You know, to go for a walk and just take it in. It's, so, it's such a, you know, when you have beautiful days like we've had the last couple of days, 80 degrees, I don't know about in, in Alaska or in Illinois, but here it's been, it's been beautiful. So, uh, you know, you take it in, you appreciate this, the, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's somebody, somebody running this. That's one way to, that, that we can understand what Avram observed. The other way, though, is, is, is quite the opposite. If you understand the word dolekes, he saw the tower a, lit, a light to mean that he saw it on fire. That's a whole different story. And he said, could, uh, could one say that this world has no guide? He saw it on fire. Could it be that nobody, if it's on fire, there must be somebody who lit it on fire, it seems he's asking. There's different ways to understand it, but that's one way to understand it is things so unnatural don't just happen on their own. So when Avraham saw, he heard about the great flood not too many generations before him. He was the witness himself in his time to the scattering of the people with the story of the Tower of Babel, of Babylonia, Tower of Babel. So he saw that that's like, you know, the, the world on fire. Things are, there's somebody who's making a statement here. And when he saw that, so he said, there's somebody, there's somebody running this world. So sometimes it could be the opposite. Sometimes we can see God in, uh, in the good and the beauty. Sometimes we're also reminded in the, in the harsh times, the difficult times that there's, 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 there's someone running things, how God expresses himself to us, a lesson, there's something to be learned from, from th those types of events. It's up to us to try to figure it out, but, uh, but that's another way he saw. He said, there must be, if I see the great flood, the mabul, if I see the, uh, the, the destruction of the Tower of Bavel and the scattering of the nations, there must be somebody who's, who's running this thing. Um, that was actually the response of the Hasidic Rebbe, the Klosenberger Rebbe, during the Holocaust. The Klosenberger Rebbe, you know, he, he went through the worst. Um, he had, uh, he, he lost his wife and 12 kids in the, in the Holocaust. He survived. He actually remarried and had seven more kids after the war. Um, he built up a tremendous dynasty of, uh, and, and, and I mean, he just, 
he built a, a whole Hasidus followers after he built a hospital. He built tremendous what he was able to accomplish to, to rebound from. But he he said something that only someone like him could say, somebody who experienced this, um, the horrors could say such a thing. But he said that, you know, how did I how did I get through it? All the suffering, all the horrors, all the challenge. So he said there was one idea that I kept in mind that that helped me get through it. I heard this just last week. On, I was listening to a class by Rabbi Mati Neuberger. He, he was expressing this idea. And, um, and he said that the, 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 the Kosenberger Rebbe said that when uh, during those hardest times, those most difficult times, you remember one idea. The idea was that we find that you know, we, King David wrote the Psalms, or almost all of them, most of them. And one of them is titled Mizmor le David, a song unto David, Bivarcha Mipne Avshalom Bino, when he was running away from his son Avshalom. Avshalom was one of David's sons, and he rebelled against his father, and he took over the kingdom temporarily, and King David was on the run. And he wrote a psalm on the run, and it begins a song unto David. A song? He's singing a song while he's on the run? So the Kosenberger Rebbe said, why is he singing? Why is he, why is he, what's with the joy? He's, he's running away from his son who's trying to kill him. What could be worse than that? Why is he singing? So he said that, that had it been, you know, King David recognized that this is what, for whatever reason, God had determined he deserved. He had to go through this experience for whatever reason. He had to be removed from his throne temporarily. He had to... He had to go through that. Now it could have been that somebody else rebelled. You know, he had a, he had a general who was who was against him. You know, he had, it could have been somebody a coup. You know, a military coup it could, didn't have to be his son that was the one to sort of carry out this this decree from God. It could have been someone else. He says the thing is, that had it been someone else, had it been a neighboring country came and conquered or some, you know, a high-ranking military official through, you know, overthrew him. So then he would have said, you know, this is just the way of the world. This is, these things happen. He wouldn't have necessarily recognized God's hand in it. He said, but when I, when it was my son that was chasing me, trying to kill me, he said, that's so unnatural. It's so clear. These things don't happen. If it's happening, it must be that God is doing it. God wants this to happen. And therefore, David sings, because he recognizes this is, this is God guiding everything. He sings a mizmor, a song of praise to God at that moment, because he really sees God's hand. So the Kosenberger Rebbe said that's what he thought about when he was going through those, the most horrific moments. He thought about that idea that this can't be happening. This is so absurd. It's so horrific. And it's, you can't explain this nat under normal circumstances. It's so unnatural for human beings to act in this way. And that carried him through. He said, there, again, we don't understand why, why God did this, but, but knowing and, and being able to, 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 to focus on that idea, this is, this is God running things. I don't understand why, but that was able to carry him through those hard times. So the idea, to, you know, it's only somebody who experienced that could say that, but the idea the takeaway is that, that sometimes even in the most difficult times, you know, the most horrific times, a person could see God's hand. That's maybe what Avraham recognized when he saw destruction. He also was able to see there's, there's, there's somebody running this thing. I don't understand why everything happens, but there's somebody running things. That was part of Avraham's development of, of his faith in God. Okay, so I want to now move along a little bit in his... Uh, in Avraham's life, we're not going to get so far tonight. But we uh, we started last week with his with the test of lech lecha. At the end, we talked about go. God says go, get up, leave your the land of your birthplace, go to the land of Canaan. Well, actually, God doesn't even tell him where to go. Eventually, tells him you're going to the land of Canaan. So Avraham goes to the land of Canaan, and uh, and when he arrives there. When he arrives there, there was a famine. So if you look in source four, just skip ahead. I have three different verses there, six, eight, and 10. 
I'm going ahead to, to 10. We might come back to the other ones. But it, so it says, there was, when he gets to Canaan and there was a famine in the land, and Abraham descended to Egypt to sojourn there because the famine was severe in the land. So he gets to Canaan. God says, go to Canaan. He finally gets there and there's a famine. And there's a famine in the land, which Rashi tells us, the great commentary Rashi says, it means only in Egypt, there were, only in Canaan, there was a famine, nowhere else. So he literally, God says, go to Canaan. He gets there and it's, what's going on here? You can't, there's no food, I have to leave. So, so Rashi, I have it there, comments, Rashi says a famine in the land, in that land alone, to test him. This was another test whether he could he would think ill of the words of the holy one blessed be he who ordered him to go to the land of Canaan, and now he was forcing him to leave it it's from a midrash rashi's quoting that this was another test the test was when avraham gets to Canaan and finds no food what is his reaction going to be is he going to turn around to god and say what, what are you what are you talking about what are you what are you thinking telling me to come here there's no food here are you crazy or says, okay, God wanted me to come here. Now there's no food here. Obviously he wants me to move on, at least temporarily. So Rashi understands that, 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 that Avram passed this test. He didn't question God. Sometimes we, uh, we want to ask, you know, I'm doing the right things. Why is this happening to me? Avram teaches us it's happening for a reason. Just we're, we're you know, God has a plan. We're not to question and uh, and uh, and therefore he he continues on to Egypt. Um, the the Ramban has an opposite understanding. Ramban Nachmanides, another medieval commentator, um, says that actually Avram made a mistake here. Avram's first mistake, maybe. Ramban writes something that only someone like the Ramban can say. He says that when Avram left Canaan to go to Egypt, these are his words. Um, <clears throat> that was a sin, he says. That was a sin. That was an error. He shouldn't have left. God told him to go to Canaan. He should have stayed in Canaan. And he says, because Avram went down to Egypt, so in the place where the sin occurs, that's where the judgment occurs. Because Avram went down to Egypt, that's why his descendants will have to go down to Egypt. That's why the Jewish people will have to be enslaved in Egypt, which is something, you know, that's quite a statement to make, that uh, as a result of Avram not having proper faith in God and not just accepting, you know, go to Canaan and staying there, it's going to work out. If God said to come here, it's going to work out. He shouldn't have gone to, to, to Egypt. And for that, as a result, his descendants are also going to have to go down to Egypt. So it's very difficult to understand because it seems so minor, a little slip up. And why, you know, what does that, why does that impact Avram's descendants so much? So I once saw an answer to that. I don't, I was trying to find where I saw it, but I couldn't find it. But so I can't quote who says it, but uh, I once saw. It actually ties back to what we spoke about last week. Last week, we spoke about the tests of Avram, and we posed the question, what was the, what was the point of going through those tests? What were, they, what were they meant to accomplish? And one understanding is that the tests that Avram experienced were in order to imbue within his descendants the ability to pass similar tests, the ability to overcome similar challenges. So we noted that Avram is commanded, you know, go to Canaan, go to Israel. And people throughout our history, throughout our generations, just somehow have this ability to just all of a sudden pick up and move to Israel. They leave everything behind. And it's unbelievable. And where do people get that strength? Where do they get that ability? So Rabbi Chaim of Elijah says they get it from Avram, who did it. And he imbued in his descendants that ability. So many Jews over all the generations have given up their lives for their faith. Where do they get that from? They get that from our ancestor, Avraham, who was ready to give up his life for his faith, be cast into a fiery furnace. And that, uh, that 
imbue his descendants, it's in our spiritual DNA, the ability to sacrifice ourselves on behalf of God. And even throughout the generations, the simplest of Jews have been able to, to do that. And so on, each of the tests that Avram has overcame. But it also maybe works in the other direction. You know, Avram is planting the seeds for, the, for, his, for his offspring. He's imbuing in, in us the ability to overcome. So if there's a lack of faith on behalf of Avraham, then that too will be passed on to his descendants. So at this moment, according to Ramban, Avram demonstrated a lack of faith. That's going to be passed on to, to his descendants. And so the descendants of Avram need to go through an experience that will fix that, that will repair that, that will give them that faith that they need. And that would be the process of Egyptian slavery, but, but probably even more so the eventual miracles that they would experience at the end of that. It's a whole topic in itself, what, the, you know, what was accomplished through the, the, the Egyptian bondage, but certainly the, 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 the experience of seeing the plagues at the end and the, the faith in God that that produced. And that's a foundation of our faith that our ancestors witnessed such amazing miracles and we recount it daily, but also annually on Pesach and Passover and all these great miracles. And it's part of our tradition of faith. So that's, that's according to this approach to sort of to counteract this one error of, of Avraham. If Avraham had imbued us with the full faith, then maybe that wouldn't have been necessary. So it's, it's a quite a profound idea, probably. Um, um, yeah, so I, I, mean, I don't remember who said it, so I can't remember who I'm quoting, but, uh, but, but it fits into sort of to this overall picture of, of, the, of Avram and really all the patriarchs and matriarchs imbuing their offspring with these, these uh, traits, these important traits in order for the Jewish nation to, to carry on their mission. Um, so, so Avram goes down to Egypt. He ends up going down to Egypt. And, uh, and there he has an experience where uh, basically he, he realizes that they're going to try to take his wife, Sarah, for, the, for either the, the citizens of Egypt will or the king, the pharaoh will. And that's what ends up happening. They, he tries to hide her. He doesn't succeed. Sarah ends up being kidnapped, abducted, taken to Pharaoh's palace. Um, but then, uh, then Pharaoh realizes that this was a mistake. Um, he experiences plagues, he experiences pain, and, uh, and he gives Sarah back, Sarah back to Avraham, and uh, he gives them gifts and he sends them, he sends them on their way. In brief, that's, that's what happens to Avraham in Egypt. Now, Certainly this was a, a challenging experience for all of them, especially for Sarah, who uh, was abducted. Now, I don't think any harm actually befell her, but, but uh, the, the whole experience was certainly um, frightening and difficult. And again, it's the type of thing where we say, it must have happened for a purpose. But what was the purpose of that? Why did, why did Sarah have to go through this? We have a very similar story in our history much later, which is the story of Purim, the story of Esther, where Esther is also abducted basically by the king. And, uh, and there she actually is forced to become the wife of the, of the king, to become the queen of Ahasuerus in Persia. And there we know why it happened. There, they didn't know for nine years she was the queen and they had no idea why, what the purpose of this was, what was God's plan. But we know how it plays out. We know how... It was really for the best, and that's one of our uh, one of our 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 great uh, stories that demonstrate how God runs things, pulls the strings, and and works things out. And we say, you know, everything that happens happens for a purpose. But while we say that, and we're taught to say that, and we 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 know that 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 God is good, and everything that God does has 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 an ultimately good purpose. But we don't always see it and we don't always understand it. And uh, that's 
That's how it is with the, the prophet Isaiah, Yeshaya says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. You don't understand everything that I do, basically, God says. You know, we don't, we don't understand everything that God does. But we, we, we do acknowledge that there's a purpose to it. But sometimes, sometimes if we pay attention, we do see the reason behind something. We may not see it right away, but sometimes in the long run, we can see the purpose. So Rabbi David Feinstein, his father is the famous Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. He was famous himself. He passed last year, I think. Rabbi, um, Rabbi David Feinstein has a very creative but, but uh, important, I think, explanation for why, why this had to occur to Sarah. Why did she have to go through this experience of being abducted by Pharaoh, Pharaoh and, then, uh, and then set free? So he says, well, you can assume just like with Esther that there was a purpose to this. So what was the purpose? So he says that um, this incident set an example for the Egyptians of what it means to, what happens if you mess with a Jewish woman, with a descendant of uh, someone from Abraham's lineage, his family. You know, we find in, uh, in the book of Bamidbar, of Numbers, the Jewish people are traveling through the desert and they're counted. And when counting the Jewish people, so the verse, I put it number five, it says that Reuven, so he's the firstborn, and it lists off the descendants of Reuven, Reuven were the family of the Hanochites from Hanoch, the family of the Paolites from Palu, goes through each of the different families and, 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 and the way that he expresses it in the Hebrew, so if let's say his, his, his son was Hanoch, that was the name. So it says the family of Hanoch. In English, we say the Hanochites, but in Hebrew, it's Ha-Hanochi. So it take, puts a Ha at the beginning and a Yud at the end, a He at the beginning and a Yud at the end. So, and it does that for each of the, each of the, uh, each of the different family names. The only one that it doesn't do it for, interestingly, is Yimna, because Yimna already begins with the yod and ends with the hey. So it already has those two letters there. So that's the only one for Yimna. It says the family of Yimna, the Yimna. It doesn't say, it doesn't add in the, the hey and the yod because it already has the letters hey and yod. So why are we adding the letters hey and yod to each of these family names? So Rashi says over there, it's number five, since the nations were denigrating them, saying, how can they trace their lineage by their tribes? Do they think that the Egyptians did not exploit their mothers? If they, ma if they mastered their bodies, all the more so do they exercise authority over their wives. Meaning the Jewish people are being counted in the desert. And we're saying this, th these children, this family comes from this man, Hanoch. That's the paternal lineage. So, so people looked at that and they said, what are you what do you think? You think that, that he's really the father? You think that the Egyptians didn't have their way with the Jewish women? These are, these, these are Egyptians, these, these children. They're not, they're not descendants of, of, of Israel. They're not from the, these families that you think they're from. So therefore, says the Torah, therefore Rashi explains, the Holy One, blessed, he appended his name to them. The letter He to one side and the Yud to the other side. Because a yud and a hey is one of God's names. So as if to say, I bear witness for them that these are the sons of their fathers. This was to say that God is bearing witness that indeed these are the descendants of those fathers. There's a yud and a hey at the beginning of each family name. Either a hey and then a yud or a yud and then a hey. So, so if Einstein asks, says, but wait a second, the argument seems good. Why isn't it true? Why isn't it true that the Egyptians took advantage of the Jewish women. So he says that the reason is because they remembered what had happened to Pharaoh. What had happened when he had tried to abduct and take advantage of Sarah, Abraham's wife. What had happened was he was punished and he experienced plagues. And therefore, nobody forgot what had happened. This is a couple hundred years later. But they didn't, this was always known. You don't mess with the women from the family of Abraham. And the descendants of Abraham are from the family of Abraham. So the Egyptians did not mess with the Jewish women. 
And that's why none of the none of the Jewish children, the Jewish children were Jewish children. They were descendants of the family of Jacob, of the tribes of Jacob, of these families that are named. They are not descendants of Egyptians. And that is a remarkable idea. And it's very important, very profound, because what it means, first of all, is now we understand the master plan. We understand it took a few hundred years for it to become clear. And again, you need like the, I wouldn't have figured this out. It's an amazing insight from, from Rabbi Feinstein. But, but sometimes this is how it works. We don't know. We don't know how things work out, how something is for the best. And Sarah certainly didn't know probably wouldn't have known why this she was she had to experience this but she had to experience this she had to go through the process the challenge of being abducted and then being uh being released with pharaoh being punished for that for her her own descendants that in the future those women those jewish women would not be taken advantage of by the egyptian men and the, the profundity, what's, what's amazing about this is it's really not just about that generation, but it's about every generation. How do we know that we descend from Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, the forefathers, which is, you know, this, this whole class is about descending from, 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 from the, these great people. So at least maybe the maternal lineage would be assured because uh, the mothers were clearly J Jewish women from this family. But but with the fathers, we wouldn't know. It could may have, maybe it was maybe we descend from Egyptians, right? But God says no. God testifies, no, no, no. The, 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 the families that are named in the Torah, those are the families. It's not no, no, nobody is from Egyptian fathers. They are all descended indeed from the, the, the families of the forefathers of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. So really, this, this event assured. That, uh, that their descendants would be their descendants, that their descendants would, even from on the paternal side, would be, would be, um, would not be from Egyptians, but would be from the descendants of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. So that's perhaps why Sarah had to go through this experience. Um, now, we started talking about last week an idea that the book of Bereshis, the book of Genesis, Genesis means creation, and the the uh, that that word is is not just a like a, a Roman Latin invention. It's that's that's the that's the word that our sages use. They call it the book of Bereshis. Of they call it Sefer Yitzira, the book of creation. And Ramban, Ahmadides comments that it's the book of creation in more than one way. Because it, if you, it doesn't really make sense to call it the book of creation just because the very first chapter has the creation. The rest of it is not about the creation, right? So it should be the book of the forefathers. We said last week, it's also sometimes called the book of the Yashar, of Yisharim, of the straight ones, of, which we, we explained. But uh, it's called the book of creation. So Ramban says, that the reason why Bereshis is the book of creation, I think I put it here actually, it's on number six. The Torah completed the book of Bereshis, which is the book of creation, in terms of the creation of the world and formation of all creations, meaning that's the creation, creative process, God creating the world, and with regards to the happenings of the forefathers, which are formative to their offspring for all that occurred to them are images that hint and tell of the future to come to them. So what he means, what he's saying is that somehow there's a, that the, the occurrences of the forefathers themselves are a creation of future events. They're going to, to be the precursors of future events. And this is an idea, he's really echoing an idea that he talks about in his commentary in in. Genesis, Imberatius. And he writes, number seven in the sources, I will tell you a principle. Understand it with regards to all the sections dealing with the forefathers, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. It is a great matter that our sages have mentioned in brief when they said, all that occurred to the forefathers is a sign to their children. In Hebrew, we say, Masay avot, 
Siman Labanim. Masay Avo Simen Labanim. The happenings to the forefathers are a sign to their offspring. And he says, therefore, the Torah speaks at length of the travels, tells us all these stories. They seem unimportant. The, the travels, they, they went here, they went there. Digging wells and other occurrences, we're going to have stories about they dug the well, then they covered it up, and they make a well here, and like it just seems insignificant. They seem superfluous without any purpose, but they all come to teach about the future. The Rambang is telling us that when we call Beratius the book of creation, we don't just mean the creation of the world, we also mean the creation of history. That the, the, that, that the history, at least the history of the Jewish people, is laid out in the book of Beratius. That the steps, the footsteps, in their footsteps, the footsteps of the forefathers are the footsteps that their descendants are going to eventually take. And so, for example, um, we have this episode of going down to Egypt. Avraham, there's a famine. He goes down to Egypt. Um, his wife is, uh, is abducted. Pharaoh is punished. And, uh, and then Avraham goes out very rich. So a lot of that may sound familiar. Avram's descendants, there's going to be a famine. They're going to be forced to go down to Egypt. They're going to be mistreated. The, the, the males are going to be thrown in the river. Some under the, the Midrash understands that was an attempt also to take advantage of the females. There would be no, no males. Um, they, uh, the, the, the Egyptians are punished. And then the Jewish people go out with great, great wealth. The occurrences of the forefathers are a sign for their offspring. The occurrence, the, 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 the very experience that Avram had was a prophecy. Interestingly, Yitzchak, Isaac, is also going to experience a, a famine. God says to him, don't go to Egypt. Don't go to Egypt. Different explanations for why not. But one explanation, the Hassam Sofer, my Moshe Sofer says, you don't go to Egypt because the Jewish people are only supposed to go down to Egypt once, right? And if the acts of the forefathers is going to be a sign for the descendants, so we don't want you to, so God says, you know, only Avram goes to Egypt. Isaac, you don't go down to Egypt. Now, you can ask a question that Jacob went down to Egypt. That was, but that was this, the, uh, the outcome of, of, of Avram's action. But that's how he understands it. It's an interesting explanation. But in any event, we have this idea that the very footsteps that the forefathers take itself is a prophecy for future generations. Typically, prophets, the way that they experience prophecy, this is all prophets except for Moshe, basically, Moses. They, they see a, a vision and they can interpret the vision. So it's a sort of a metaphoric vision. This is how Maimonides, the Rambam, explains how prophecy works. A prophet will see a vision and they'll know how to interpret the vision. It's not usually an experience, though. What was unique about the forefathers is that they experienced prophecy through their life experiences. They understood as prophets that the places that they were sent, the places they were to walk, was to be a prophecy. It was to tell them either something significant is going to happen here, or actually your very actions are going to reoccur to some degree to your ancestors. If we go back to, uh, to number four, so uh, source four, so when Avram first arrives in, uh, in Canaan, so it says in verse six, and Abram passed through the land until the place of Shechem, until the plain of Moret, and the Canaanites were then in the land. So it says he came to Shechem. So why did he come to Shechem? So Avram says, everything that, that's happening to me is a prophecy. Everything that's happening to me, the steps that I'm taking is a precursor. There's a reason why I'm being brought here. I'm being shown something. And so he prays. It says, Rashi says, why did he go to Shechem? To pray for Jacob's sons when they would come to wage war in Shechem. Avram knew he was coming here for a reason. He was coming here because his offspring was going to come here to Shechem. Jacob's sons, they were going to have a war with Shechem. And Avram was being told 
that uh, by being brought here about this, and he was to he was to pray for them. And then it goes on and it says, and then they came to the plain of Moret. And Rashi says, um, he showed him where he showed him Mount Gerizim and Mount Eval, where Israel accepted the oath of the Torah. So again, this is after the Jewish people crossed into the land of Israel after 40 years in the desert. So they accept an oath at Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. But Abram is having a, a vision that they're going to come to this place. And I guess, again, he's supposed to, to pray um, and, uh, and sort of prepare for that eventuality. So, uh, so each step, each step that Avram takes is in some way a prophecy. And we'll see this as we go through the different episodes of Avram's life, that, uh, that they, are, they are prophetic um, experiences that, are, uh, that, that will be later experienced by his descendants. Um, The, the Ramban explains that that the you know you can have a prophecy without the forefathers ex- actually acting on it, sort of living it out. But when they live it out, that concretizes it. When there's something that you know a, a prophecy, God can change if it hasn't been concretized in the world, then it can still change. But once they once there's an action that's taken, then that concretizes the prophecy, and that was the idea for these various events where they were to do something, where they were to go somewhere. So they dug the wells, the wells got covered, there was a rock on the well, different, all of these things are symbolic of future events. And, uh, and by actually having something physical occur, they were, they were concretizing those events. So, so in many ways, what I've been trying to set up here is just this, this idea that, that the, and it's, I guess we're still sort of in the introduction to the, to the class because we're bring, trying to bring out that the, what happened to the forefathers is very much relevant to us and to, the, to, to their descendants. This is, a, this is the book of creation. It's the book of Yetzira, the book of formation. Everything that happened to them is a sign for their children. They're either brought somewhere because in the future, their descendants will come to that place and they're to pray there, or they're brought somewhere to experience something that their descendants are themselves going to experience, or they're put through certain challenges, like we talked about last week, to, to, to instill and imbue their descendants with the strength to, to overcome such challenges. And it's all because of, it's all, it's all in, in, because they are the roots of our nation. They are the roots. The, the Talmud, it's the last source, it says we only call three the avos, the patriarchs, and we only call four imahos, the matriarchs. You can only call three people, the forefathers, you can only call three people the, the, the matriarchs. What is that saying? So I think it's, it's maybe speaking to this idea. You can, you know, obviously you can call your, your father your father and your mother your mother, right? But, but who are the matriarchs and the patriarchs? does it really make a difference who they are? Like, why, why, do, why is it expressing it this way? Like, don't, no, don't call them, you know, like, why not? But I think what maybe it's expressing is these seven people formed the Jewish people in a way that nobody else did. Their, their actions are prophetic in this way. Their actions are, the, uh, are setting the tone for all future generations. They are the roots of the Jewish people. I, I heard somebody, somebody told me this past Shabbos in shul. He, he actually, he, he said, I want to tell you something and I want you to use it in, a, in either a class or in a speech. So he told me, I said, I can't promise, you know. He, so he told me it and I said, okay, I think I could use that in my class. So he was very happy. So, so he said that he realized that the word Yisrael, Israel, the letters are the first letters of all the names of the, the matriarchs and the patriarchs. So you have Yud, Yisrael, Yud, which is the first letter of Yitzchak and Yaakov. And you have Sin, Yis, that's the first letter of Sarah. You have Resh, which is the first letter of Rachel. And you have Aleph, which is the first letter of Avraham. And you have Lamed, which is the first letter of Leah. So the letters of Yisrael are actually the letters that are for the, the, the patriarchs, all the patriarchs and the matriarchs. 
which uh, Rivka and Rachel actually are covered by the Rish. So, so uh, you know, it's a nice idea, but I think actually it's really, it, it really ties into what we're saying now. These are the people who are the roots of Yisrael, of Israel. They are the roots of our nation. Their actions, their, their experiences are what form us and, 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 and dictate sort of the experiences that we're going to, to have. And, uh, and also the, the, their accomplishments, their, their, their traits are, are rooted within us. The, the Talmud says, um, I, I forget how I expresses it exactly. Actually, I might have it somewhere on this table. Yeah, um, I think it's in here. But so it, 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 act, it says that if a person has certain traits, um, so th there's three traits, at least, of, of, of a descendant of Avraham um, to be, to be, it says, here, here it is. It says there's three signs in this nation. They are um, merciful, they have shame, and they do chesed. And where do they get it from, it says? They inherit it from, it's a morasha, it's an inheritance. They got it from Avraham, they got it from Yitzchak, they got it from... Yaakov. And so the, the traits that we have are an inheritance from our, from our patriarchs and from our matriarchs. They are the ones who make up Yisrael. And, uh, and that is, uh, and that's important for us to know. And as we, again, as, I guess we're still in the introduction because as we, as we explore more of these, of their, their deeds and their actions and their traits, so then we can Understand that we have these imbued within us also. And like we started with last week, we have to ask ourselves, you know, when can my deeds reach the deeds of our forefathers and our foremothers? So we, we have, it's a, it's a high goal to aim for, but, uh, but we have it within us to really reach great heights. Okay, we will stop there.